Our scripture reading for our sermon this morning comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's pray. God, we, we approach you not based on our observance of your commands, but based on the fact that you are God who shows us mercy, that you have made atonement for our sin through the death of your own son. You did not take what was someone else's, you gave what was your own, that we might come before you in freedom. So Lord, as we, uh, as we read a, a challenging uh, text, Lord, may our hearts um, respond with humility. May we remember most of all that we approach you on grace, not on the law. That is our great comfort. Open our ears and our minds and our hearts, Jesus, to what you want to speak to us as your church this morning. Pray this in your holy name. Amen. In the 1970s, especially the 1980s, there was kind of the beginning of what became known as the church growth movement. Um, how do I explain it? It's kind of like a philosophy of ministry, kind of affects how people would run church services, and um, especially with uh, churches like Saddleback Church in California, uh, Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago, churches that utilize these principles of church growth and then just exploded numerically uh, in ways that were unthinkable before, uh, before that. Um, all of a sudden, these principles became really popular, and other you know, church leaders were looking at these big churches, thinking, well, they seem to be successful, let's do what they're doing, and our churches will, will grow numerically as well. Um, the church growth movement, like any kind of movement within Christianity, like any kind of you know, trend or whatever, there's, there's good and there's bad. And, and it certainly came from a good place. Um, I mean, uh, what's the guy at Saddleback? What's his name? Rick Warren. Um, and he started his church because he wanted to reach unchurched people. Uh, it was a genuine desire, and, and they did that, seemingly. Uh, there's many people who attended Saddleback Church who made professions of faith who would not otherwise have attended church. So there was some good, I think it started from a good place, but the great 
negative of this kind of movement is that essentially what they did is they took business principles and how you run a company and they just grafted that onto how we do church. And so for instance, um, members who are attending church are no longer the gathered body of Christ coming to worship God, they're now customers. And um, the church is not uh, you know, equipping the saints for ministry and, 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 and to be like Jesus, the church is now selling a product, which is both kind of your, your singing worship style, uh, the giftedness of your, of your, of your pastor. Um, you are now selling a product to your people. And, and obviously on many levels, there's a lot of issues with this. But the main issue is that, again, if you're, if you're attending a church and you are the customer, then the goal of the church is to please the customer. And what do customers want? They want to be encouraged they want to be inspired, and they want to be entertained. And that is a very good description of many churches that kind of fall from this church growth, what became seeker-sensitive, and then finally the attractional church is what it's called today, uh, very much describes them. But the problem with that is that following Jesus is very often discouraging. It's very often uninspiring, and often is very costly. And so if our message of Jesus is only one that encourages, is only one that inspires, is only one that entertains, I fear that the long-term fruit is going to be very stunted because it's not an accurate reflection of what discipleship, following Jesus, actually is. And so it's, 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 it's uh, important to note that as we begin this new section on discipleship, One of the ways that Jesus starts it is by emphasizing that the way of the Christ and and therefore the way of the Christian is the way of the cross. It's one that involves suffering and hardship and sacrifice and includes that up front. doesn't tack it on at the end. This is essential to discipleship. And so just to recap, again, we're, we're, we're transitioning to a new section. Luke, Luke's a long book, so it's just helpful to kind of be able to orient ourselves where in the book we are Chapters 4 to 8 uh, is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and there's kind of this driving question. Who is this? He heals people. He casts out demons. He teaches in amazing ways, and, and, and it's repeated throughout uh, the narrative. In, in chapter 4, after one of his first healings, the way that people respond is to say, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Who is this? He says things, and things happen. Well, then the disciples, just a chapter ago, in chapter 8, after they witness him uh, with, with his voice like, speaking to the winds and the waves and they obey, they say, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? That's the theme of the first four chapters that we've been going through. Who is this? And that's answered definitively in our text this morning. And there's a transition then to, okay, then, if, if we've decided who Jesus is, well, then what does that mean for those who follow him. That's the transition we're making. And the roadmap, just so you see where we're going, is first we're going to see this kind of final answer that Luke brings to us. Is who is Jesus? Our first point is that Jesus is the Christ. Second point is going to be a, 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 a kind of a, um, a clarification of what that means. So the Christ, the way of the Christ is the way of the cross. And then finally, thirdly, therefore... Since the way of the Christ is the way of the cross, the way of the Christian is also the way of the cross. That's where we're going to be going. So let's go ahead and and look at verses 18 and 19 with me. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? 
And they answered, John the Baptist. But others, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. So if you remember from our story last time, the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples had been out in this like exhausting itinerant ministry for weeks. And they come back. Jesus is trying to, to kind of go on a retreat with them to rest, to, to process what just happened. And the crowds find them. And so they have another hard day of ministry. But here, finally, the disciples have a minute to step back and be with Jesus alone. And here's the thing. The, the disciples have been out, you know, they've been out in the, with the people in the countryside of Judea. They've been, like, interacting with the people. So Jesus kind of does this informal poll. He's like, okay, you guys have been spending a lot of time with the people out in the countryside. What do people think of me? Who do they think I am? And they respond with, well, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets of old, and that may seem really random, like those are three very random options, but the point is those are all prophets. John the Baptist was a prophet. Elijah was a prophet, or one of the prophets of old. The people of Israel, the multitudes, had recognized that Jesus was a prophet. Prophet is somebody who speaks from God. They recognized that that Jesus, when he speaks, it's not just the voice of a man, it really is the voice of God coming through. They got that part of Jesus. But Jesus is more than just, he's certainly a prophet, absolutely, but he's more than a prophet. And so then Jesus turns to his disciples and he surveys them. Verse 20, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. This is interesting because again, just a chapter ago, his, his disciples were like freaking out after seeing Jesus calm the wind and the waves saying, who is this? But at some point, they turned a chapter, and they've seen enough of who Jesus is. They've, they've heard him teach enough. They've spent enough time with him that they realize, no, Jesus, you're not just a prophet. You're not just a really gifted teacher. You're not just an activist or moral leader. Whatever You are the Christ. And the question is, okay, what does that mean? Because it doesn't tell us. It doesn't say you are the Christ of God, and therefore that's what this means. There seems to be this assumed understanding that everyone understands what it means when saying Jesus is the Christ. And here's the thing. We use Christ as like the last name of Jesus, right? Jesus is the first name. Christ is his last name, um, to distinguish him from all the other Jesuses out there. Um, but that's actually not the case. It, technically, it should be Jesus the Christ, but that's a little bit wordy, so we just say Jesus Christ. But just like if you've heard of Richard the Lionhearted, that king of England in the 11th century who was very courageous. He's not, that's not his name, Richard Lionhearted. I mean, it's saying something about him that he was courageous in battle. And so when we say Jesus the Christ, we're making a statement about who Jesus is. So what is a Christ? Who is the Christ that Jesus is this? Well, Christ is a, um, refers to an Old Testament word that literally means the anointed. The anointed. The Greek, is, the Greek word is Christ. The Hebrew word is Meshiach. What does that sound like? Messiah, exactly. Now, in the Old Testament, there were three offices that were anointed, three positions that were anointed before they began their service. Prophet, priests, and kings. Before they began, before you began serving as a prophet, you were anointed. It was a way of saying you're set apart for this ministry. And so you are now a anointed one. So any prophet, any priest, any king would have been a Messiah in the Old Testament. There were many Messiahs. There were, there were many anointed ones. But there's this theme throughout the Old Testament that there will come a day when not just 
a Messiah, not just a anointed one, but the anointed one of God is going to come. He's going to deliver his people. You see, uh, allusions to this in Psalm 2 is one of the most probably obvious ones and, and, and well-known ones. But Psalm 2, the psalmist says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel, get this, against the Lord and against his anointed. That's that Meshiach, the Christ with the Greek translation of that. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I, you know, he's talking about the anointed again, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me. Now is the anointed speaking, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So you're an Israelite, you live in a place where like the highway to go anywhere goes through your hometown, which means if anyone wants to go anywhere, they've got to go through Israel, which means you are always at the mercy of whatever superpower exists. And so the thought that there is coming an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ, who's going to dash the enemies of Israel with an iron rod, who will rule the nations, who will deliver Israel, that's like a big hope. That's the Christ. And so when Peter and the disciples say, Jesus, you are the Christ, they're not saying you're a prophet, you're just another priest. They're saying, no, you're, you're this one who's referenced in Psalm 2. And it's important to realize, and we'll get to why this is the, the case, but when Peter says you are the Christ, he's thinking of Psalm 2. This is a, he's thinking of a military deliverer of Israel. And that's going to be really, really important for, for how Jesus responds to this true declaration that Jesus is the Christ. So who is Jesus? He's not just another prophet. He's not just another Messiah, but he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. There's, there's just no more important question for us to be absolutely certain on than who is Jesus. There is no more important question for us to be absolutely certain on in our hearts, who is Jesus? The Bible has many confusing parts, parts that are hard to understand, parts that are frankly just offensive to our modern sensitivities and are hard for us to swallow. And we get hung up on all these other things. But here's the thing. Who is Jesus if he really is the Christ? We can figure out all those questions we have. If he's not the Christ, then why waste time? For some of us, we maybe have attended church for a long time and we know the right Sunday school answer of who Jesus is. We know he's the son of God. But maybe, like, we wonder. I'm not sure if I really believe that. My encouragement is that if we find ourselves in a place where we're actually not too sure we know who Jesus is, my encouragement is this coming week, this coming month, however long it takes, pursue that question like your life depends on it. If Jesus is not the Christ, you're not going to lose anything by seeking out to find out who he is. If anything, you'll learn some interesting history, and then you can move on with your life. But if Jesus is the Christ, then who he is really is life and death significance. Who is Jesus? 
Again, he's not just this interesting moral religious leader of the first century, but he is the Christ, the anointed of God, who came to deliver Israel from their sin. Second point, though, is that the way of the Christ is the way of the cross. And here's the interesting thing. So Peter has made this amazing declaration. Nobody has gotten who Jesus is yet. And Peter says, you are the Christ. You think Jesus would say, great, go back out, proclaim the kingdom, and now you know who the king is. But instead, what does he say? Verses 21 and 22. And he strictly charged them, and he commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. He strictly charged them and commanded them. To t- that's, not like, that's some serious words. That's like warning them and commanding them, do not utter a word about this to anyone. Why would Jesus do that? It doesn't make any sense. Like, we tell each other we should bear witness about Christ to other people, and here's the Savior saying, no, don't tell anyone what you know about me. The reason is that, again, the disciples have a very incomplete picture of who Jesus is. They're imagining, when they say the Christ, they're imagining that picture of Psalm 2, the one who's going to rule the nations, who's going to destroy, dash their enemies with like a rod of iron. They're thinking, look, this train is on its way to glory and victory. We're on that train. This is going to be awesome. That's what the disciples are thinking. And so Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. He doesn't deny that Psalm 2 is true. Jesus will one day come and reign, and, 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 and he will rout, put to rout all his enemies. But before Psalm 2 can be fulfilled, what the disciples did not understand is that Isaiah 53 had to be fulfilled first. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The way of Jesus did not go straight to glory, but it first went to the cross. The reason the disciples didn't get the mission of Jesus is that they, they misunderstood what their f- most fundamental need was. They're living under foreign rule. They don't have autonomy. And let's just, let's just be generous here. None of us have ever experienced that. We all live in a free country. Nonetheless, they misunderstood what their greatest problem was. And that's a tendency that we, that's, that's always a tendency for, for us to forget. Let me use an example. I'm sure many of you guys followed the election just happened in November. I followed it. I had strong opinions about what I wanted to see happen, who I want to see elected. I'm sure you did too. It was an important election. I still have to remind myself, our greatest problem is not who is or who is not in the White House. Our greatest problem is not who is or who is not setting the policy agenda on Capitol Hill. Our greatest problem is that we have sinned against a God who is so good and so holy And every one of us is hurtling day after day towards a day when we will sit and stand before the judgment seat and we will give an account of our lives. Our greatest need is for someone on that day to carry our guilt and our shame. 
And that's what Christ the Messiah came to do. I just want you to reflect on the fact that Christ, think about this. The second member of the Trinity, God eternal, he came to earth to die for you. Right? Like he didn't come to, to, to like impress people with his teaching prowess. He didn't come to start this great empire. I mean, he had all kinds of abilities and powers. He came for the sole purpose of dying for you. That was why he came to earth. That was, the, that was where everything was leading. To break the power of sin in our lives that both binds us and blinds us so that on the day of judgment, when we stand before Jesus, we'll not stand in our sin and our shame, but we'll be able to say, no, the blood of Jesus pleads for me. I have no trust in my ability to stand before a holy and righteous God. And anyone who does, you just don't know God. My only hope is that on that day I can stand and say, the Son of God has borne my sin. And so I stand righteous before you. That's our greatest need. And that's what Christ came to do. The way of the Christ is the way of the cross. Therefore, since the way of the Christ was the way of the cross, therefore, the way of the Christian is the way of the cross as well. Do you see the logic here is happening? Jesus, you are the Christ. Yes, Peter, absolutely. But you don't understand what the Christ is coming to do. And therefore, you don't understand what's asked of you as well. Look at verses 23 to 24, or sorry, 27. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, the road I'm going to walk is not leading to glory, it's leading to a cross. It is gonna be a difficult road. And if you wanna follow me, if you wanna follow after me, you will have to walk the same road. That's what Jesus is saying. And this road, if we want to follow after Jesus, is going to involve, Louis summarizes it in three different commands. You want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, you have to take up your cross, and follow me. When you read that, it says, deny yourself. I mean, the question is, okay, deny myself what? Deny myself sugary foods? Deny myself an extra hour of sleep in the morning? Like, what are you asking me to deny myself, Jesus? And he doesn't specify, but again, the point is Jesus is saying, look, if you want to come out, if you want to follow after me, you're going to have to walk the road that I walk. So you have to look at what is the road that Jesus walked. And we realize that Jesus lived a life of incredible self-denial. The fact that Jesus coming to earth was an act of self-denial. It was Jesus denying his rightful glory and majesty he has in heaven and taking on human form. He emptied himself, as Philippians 2 says, he emptied himself of his divine glory. That was an act of self-denial. But I think the most clear, like succinct statement of Jesus' acts of self-denial is found in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before Jesus is betrayed and crucified, he knows what's coming, and he goes to the garden, and he just on his knees begs with God, pleads with God in prayer. And Luke, 
summarizes those hours of agonized prayer in this way in 22, verse 42. Father, if you are willing to remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That is the essence of of denying ourselves. Not my will. I have many things I want. We all do. The heart of humans longs to be God. I want what I want to happen. That's the heart of human sin. That's where all discord and fighting and violence comes from. I want to be what happens. Self-denial is saying, every morning waking up and saying, I know I have all these things I want, but God, not my will, but yours, what you want in my life. Jesus says, you want to follow me? Deny yourself, as Jesus did. Not my will. Second, he says, take up your cross daily. That's a very uh, provocative picture, but what does it mean? I mean, Jesus doesn't mean literally take up a cross, like you know, carry a wooden cross on your back or something. But even figuratively, what does that mean? What does it mean to take up an instrument of execution? We have to understand the picture of, of, of what carrying a cross would have meant. So the Romans, they invented crucifixion, one of the most heinous forms of execution the world's ever known. And one of the things they would do to condemn prisoners is they would force them to carry their cross publicly through a town to the place of crucifixion. It was kind of the final act of humiliation, just like Jesus did. And so if you're in town, you see a procession going by, and there's a man carrying or a woman carrying a cross, what you think is that person is basically dead. If you're carrying your cross to the place of crucifixion, you are basically dead. There are no appeals courts in the Roman Empire. There are no secondary, second choices, second chances. You're basically dead. When we turn to Jesus in faith, there is a break in our lives, a a fundamental break between our old selves, the selves that want what we want, that don't care about God, that ignore God, that ultimately hate God. There's a break from that old self into a new self whom God gives us, makes us into. He gives us new heart, a new love, new desire. That's salvation. There's a break between the old self and the new self. And so when we take up our cross, we're saying, is my old self, which again, looked at God and said, no, 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 what I want is what I'm going to do. We say, that is, I'm considering that part dead. And that's what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. Son of God, my old self is dead. It's as good as dead. No, it's not dead. It's still there. It still haunts me every day of my life. And when Christ comes back, he will forever remove the old man within us. But I'm considering him dead. I'm not going to listen to him. Not my will, but your will. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself every day. Take up your cross every day and follow me. Here's the thought behind this, what Jesus is saying is, look, this denying ourselves and taking our cross, those are decisions we make. We wake up in the morning and we choose who we're going to serve. And as we deny ourselves, as we choose to take up our cross, consider our old self dead, then we are following Jesus. We are walking in the footsteps of our Lord. That's the idea there. Jesus is correcting his disciples' expectations here because, again, they're expecting, they're thinking Jesus is on his way to glory. They don't realize the cross is coming, and so he's, he's correcting their expectations. No, 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 the way of the Christ first is not to glory. It's the way of the cross. 
And so if you want to follow me, if you want to walk in my footsteps, you're going to have to be willing to walk in the way of the cross as well. I want to give two theological truths to kind of conclude our thoughts here, to take home with us. And the first theological truth is, is as we look at the, at the requirements for what it takes to follow Jesus, what he asks of us, we have to remember, we are unable, but Jesus is able. If you remember from the feeding of the 5,000, that was the whole point. Jesus is like, hey, you guys feed these 5,000, and they're like, yeah, we can't. And Jesus says, I know, that's the point. Now I'm going to do it through you. We have to remember that. Look, what Jesus is asking of his followers, this is a high bar. If this is a high jump competition, if you remember that event from track and field where you'd run, try to jump over the bar, it was really fun. I think I was like jumping four feet. <laughs> um, this is like a bar that's 50 feet tall. Nobody looks at that and says, hmm, okay, if I run at the right angle, I think I can make it. Because as soon as you see the bar, you say, I, that's beyond me. I can't deny myself every day. I can deny myself for about a minute, and then I eat the cupcake, right? Like, I can't, no one can do that. We are unable, but Jesus is able. And this is why it's so important is that even in the most stringent of commands that Jesus gives, it's still based on grace. Do you hear me? Even the most stringent command that Jesus gives, it's still based on grace. God saves us by grace. He pursues us in our darkness. We're not looking for him. He forgives us. He makes us his own. But then day by day by day, we live by the grace he gives us to do what we cannot do. We have to remember that we're going to take this and try to run with it, and we're just going to hit a wall. Or we'll just turn into legalists, or we'll turn into, well, I guess we live however we want. It's impossible. No, the point is, day by day, this is, a, this is an act of grace. As Jesus enables us to do what we are unable to do. We are unable to live like this, but Jesus is able if we look to him in faith. The second theological truth is that the, the way of the cross is the way of life. The way of the cross is the way of life. Let me explain what I mean. When we read this, we might have this picture in our mind where it says, deny yourself, take up your cross, of this like life of drudgery, joyless, like bread and water, you know, working, you know, it's like monastic life where you like work 18 hours a day and you sleep four hours and like, just like, oh, this is drudgery. But the way of the cross is the way of life. Self-denial is really hard. Why? Why? Okay, why is self-denial really hard? I think many reasons. I think one reason, though, is that we all fundamentally want to be happy. We want to live the best life we can live. And realistically speaking, if I don't look out for number one, who will? If I don't achieve the happiness that I want in life, like, who's going to do it for me? If I deny myself, what guarantee is there that I'm going to live a fulfilled, satisfied, meaningful, full life? I think that's one of the reasons we, we have trouble denying ourselves. We really think my way is going to be the best way. It's going to achieve that desire we all have to be happy, to be fulfilled, to live a full life. Jesus says, no, deny yourself. This is what's really interesting. Look at verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We don't want to deny ourselves. We think, no, no, like what I want is, is, is what's going to lead to my best life now. But Jesus says, look, if, if you don't take up your cross, if you don't deny yourself, if you don't lose your life, 
you will in fact lose it in the long run. That's the irony. Whereas if instead you deny yourself, you take up your cross, you lose your life now, then you will find what true life is. Let's just be frank that this makes no sense. It's like, would I rather be in pain or not pain? I'd rather be in not pain. But Jesus is saying, yeah, but if you're in pain, that leads to real life. That makes no sense. How can this be true? How can it be true that taking up our, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, walking the hard road of Jesus is actually what leads to the best life? How can that possibly be true? And the first thing we have to realize, the first thing we have to remember is that there's a certain extent where we just take this by faith. Because there will be days following Jesus when it will not feel like our best life now. In fact, it will feel like we're, we gave up our best life now for something. We sold our, our inheritance for a bowl of porridge. That's what it will feel like. And, and we just have to recognize there's, there's a certain point where we come and we say, Jesus, you are my Lord, and I, just, I trust that what you say is true. I'm just, I'm just going to trust. I can't see it now. But I take this on faith that following you, even though it is costly, is just the best thing. But theologically, the reason that the way of the cross is the way of life, is that the way of the cross, life of self-denial and, and taking up our cross in service of Jesus, that is where Jesus is. You get that? The life of self-denial, of taking up our cross, the way of the cross is where rich and deep fellowship with the crucified and risen Lord is. It's where Jesus is. That's why the way of the cross is the way of life. And it's interesting. And this is why sometimes we see Christians who are, who are frankly living in like just really hard, living through hardship. And they have this like unquenchable joy. Like, why are you so joyful? Like your life's awful. Because they're walking closely with their Lord. On the flip side, there's many Christians who live much more comfortable lives and they're miserable, let's be honest. That's the irony. The way of the cross is the way of life. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his great book, The Cost of Discipleship, he was a pastor in Nazi Germany, eventually died in a Nazi concentration camp. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the message that Jesus gives to his followers. No, it's not to glory first. It's, to cro- it's the way of the cross first. If you want to follow me, you've got to die to yourself. And I would add this to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Come and die and find out what true life is. Come find out what life is like in the presence of our Lord who is crucified, but who now reigns in glory and who fills our souls with life, overflowing with his spirit. Come and die and find out what true life is. Fellowship with the one who bore the sins of the world, who suffered and died but now lives, the one for whom every heart longs, the one who is the end goal of this pilgrimage that we call life. Let's pray. Jesus, I confess that I um, I struggled with this text this week because I just know myself and it's just such a high bar. And Lord, we struggle so much to deny ourselves and to believe that life with you really is the way to true life. And we want our glory now. Christ, I'm grateful that you did not struggle with that, that you lived 
the way of the cross that you went with, with, with freedom, no one forced you to. And though you did die on a cross, you now reign in glory. Oh, make that a reality to us. Give us the grace to every day deny ourselves to pick up our cross and to follow after you. Pray this in your holy name. Amen.